This morning's message will come from John chapter 16, verses 16 through 22. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. A little while, and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, what is this thing he is telling us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. So they were saying, what is this that he says, a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wished to question him. And he said to them, are you deliberating together about this, that I said, a little while, and you will not see me? And again, a little while, and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. This is the word of the Lord. So is there any hope for joy in this life? I mean, in light of all of the brokenness, in light of the suffering, in light of the injustices, can we really know joy? What's been your experience? What about joy that can't be taken away? What about a joy that never ends? Is this kind of joy, is this joy of that type of nature, is that possible? What about joy in the midst of difficult and dark days? What about joy in the midst of troubled times? What about joy in the midst of deep despair? That may be a really interesting conversation to have today over lunch. What do you think? Is joy possible? And if joy is possible, is it possible to have a joy that sort of never shifts or wavers, but is constant amidst all the turmoil of this life? Maybe even share with one another, how successful have you been at laying hold of that kind of joy? If it is possible. As I spent time this week considering these questions, even for myself, I was reminded every human seeks happiness and joy. I mean, everything that we do, you may think, ah, Pastor, you don't understand. I don't like going to work. And so I'm not seeking happiness and joy. But there's something that work provides that brings you happiness and joy. And what every human realizes in their pursuit of this kind of happiness and joy is just how very fragile this life is and just how very fleeting earthly joys are. The older you get, the more your life is littered with moments that in the moment seem to be the apex of joy. Only then over time, to have the sheen of joy begin to, to grow dull. Diplomas don't ensure employment. Friendships don't always last. Marriages limp, sometimes fail. Bank accounts dwindle. Pleasures fade. Bodies fall apart. Children stray and even die. And in an age of incredible advance, 
in the areas of health and technology and information, this world has yet to produce anything that offers invincible and everlasting joy. And I, I want to be clear. I believe that the Bible ties happiness and joy together. But yet in our day, our culture seems to draw a distinction between happiness and joy. Right? Happiness is often seen as that feeling that arises, that emotion that flares up because of a positive experience that we have. And so something happens and I respond in happiness. I remember something and I respond in happiness. While joy is a disposition of the heart and mind that's constant, regardless of an experience happening. If I could say it another way, happiness is normally outside in. Joy is normally inside out. Happiness is like a thermometer. And depending on the circumstance, happiness will rise or fall. Joy is like a thermostat, seeking to hold and remain constant no matter the circumstances. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis offers this profound insight. All that we call human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Simply put, the driving motive in history is the desire for happiness. Lewis continues, The greatest hazard that we face is not intellectual atheism. It's not that we deny that God exists. No, our most desperate problem is affectional atheism. Refusing to believe that God is our greatest and most enduring joy. Hmm. I wonder if you struggle with believing in the midst of all the brokenness and the turmoil and the dark days, if you struggle believing that God really is the greatest and most enduring joy. I wonder what connection you make between this invincible type of joy, this everlasting type of joy, and God himself. And while this kind of joy cannot be found in what the world has to offer, the Christian faith is built on a Savior and a message in whom there is this kind of joy. And if we were just to continue to dig and say, why is the Christian faith different than everything else that this world offers? It centers, it hinges, the, the spotlight shines brightest on Resurrection Sunday. Because we celebrate the only certain ground for this kind of joy. The resurrection from of Jesus from the dead. That's the basis of invincible and everlasting joy. And so as we turn to the passage that we've heard read this morning, John chapter 16. Let us just be reminded that the work of Jesus, his sinless life. What we remembered on Friday, his death on a cross as a substitute for sinners who would give up their sin, who would turn from their sin, and who would trust in God alone. And the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Because of that good news, any one of us in here this morning, we can possess that kind of joy. Let me say it another way. If you only experience joy on your best days, you have not tasted the best joy because the best joy is strong enough for the realities of this life in a broken world. It's been our prayer all week that many in here today would know this joy. And if that's not been your story as you've come in, that you would know this joy as you walk away. And that joy is available because of the resurrection of Jesus. And so let's pray that the sermon would make clear how that fountain of joy is open to us today. Our holy God.
Lord, I just confess a unique pressure that I have felt this week of wanting this to somehow be different, somehow be better. And the truth is, is when we give ourselves to your word, it doesn't get better. Your word is best. And so I'm thankful for the grace that I have found really in wanting to please man this week. God, I want to be faithful to you. And I pray that every one of us in here this morning would want to be honest with you. That you would help us see that you are indeed the greatest and most enduring joy. That this world has no joy to offer like that which you offer. And help us see how the resurrection changes everything. It makes all the difference in the world. And so you are a God who does great things through less than ordinary means. You take a stuttering man and he stands before the most powerful man in the known world and you deliver your people through that stuttering man. Not so the stuttering man would receive glory, but so that you would. You take a little boy's lunch and you feed a multitude. Not so the little boy would, would have his name remembered, but so that your name would be great. And so I pray this morning that you would take the little bit that I have and that you would make it clear and you would allow us to behold Jesus and you would change us. Not so people remember what a great sermon, what a great preacher, what a great church, but that so people would say, what a great Savior. And so we need your help. To that end, we pray. Amen. I would invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 16. If you're not used to using a Bible, there is no shame in going to the very front into the table of contents. And you'll see... Uh, what page number the Gospel of John is on. In the New Testament, the Gospel of John is the fourth Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So when you get to the book of John, you can look on the, the upper uh, corners of the pages and you'll find big numbers. That's the chapter number. We'll be in chapter 16 this morning. And then under 16, there will be smaller numbers. Those are the verses. We'll be in 16 through 22. And so let's set a little bit of the context as to what's happening in and surrounding this passage. Jesus is in the upper room. He's with his disciples, and it's the night before his crucifixion. They have, they have uh, feasted together. They've eaten the Passover meal. Judas has already gotten up from the table, has left the disciples and Jesus, and he's on his way to betray Jesus. And Jesus is teaching his disciples and he's teaching them about what's going to happen, that he is going to die, but he's teaching them that death is not going to have the last word. Truth be told, that is such an encouraging truth for us to lay hold of. You see, every human that is born, we have this enemy that stares us all in the face, and it's a matter of time before we meet it, and it's death. And at the end of the day, if death has power over everybody, then death has to be God. And Jesus is saying, death is going to visit me, but death does not have the power over me. And he's seeking to infuse their hearts, as confused and uncertain as they were, to infuse their hearts with hope. Jesus says that this death, his death, is going to signal victory. And then he's going to ascend to heaven to be with the Father. And as he ascends to heaven to be with the Father, he's going to send his spirit so that his people will never be alone. That was the fear of the disciples. You have been with us. And now you're leaving us? And Jesus says, though I leave you, you will never be alone. Because I'm sending one who will be with you, who will comfort you. John 16 puts us then towards the end of that conversation. And just at the outset of this, don't miss the loving, tender heart of Jesus. He's seeking to prepare them for the most difficult moment in their lives. The grief and the anguish that they would feel would shake their worlds. And Jesus comes along before it happens and just tenderly, like a caring shepherd, like a kind father, 
draws them in, wraps his arms around them and says, like, I want you to know that you will be okay. Friends, Jesus cares about the dark days. And no matter what your experience is or what you've sort of allowed yourself to believe about the darkness and about the trials and the hardships and the sufferings that you're walking through today, I just want you to hear it based on the authority of what we see in the Word of God. Jesus cares about your dark days. He doesn't just play the role of I'm God over all, but I care really about not much of it at all. No, he's God over all. And he's particularly interested in caring about it all. The word tells us that God is near to the brokenhearted. Psalm 34 verse 18. That God saves those that are crushed in spirit. And so this morning, if your heart hurts for whatever brokenness or darkness or trial or hardship you're facing, I just invite you not to turn from the one who truly cares. Don't allow your anger to push you away from the one who cares about dark days. Take your hurts to Jesus and experience his care. And so we pick up in John chapter 16, beginning in verse 16, and this is what we read. A little while, and you will no longer see me, and again a little while, and you will see me. And some of the disciples then said to one another, what is this thing he's telling us? A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me, and because I go to the Father. So they were saying, what is this he says? A little while. We do not know what he's talking about. Perhaps you're new to the Bible. You show up or you've picked up the Bible a few times and you've given it a shot and you just start reading and at some point you go, I have no idea what, what this is about. You're in good company. The disciples who walked with Jesus oftentimes would say, I have no clue what this is about. Verse 18 says, they just come out and say it. We do not know what he is talking about. And it's helpful for us to remember that Jesus knows what the disciples haven't yet fully grasped. That he's hours away from going to the cross and dying. And so now, knowing that Jesus knows what awaits just the next, the next night... We can read this a little bit differently. The reference to you will no longer see me alludes to his impending death. Their hearts are going to be deeply troubled at the sufferings and at his death. And so Jesus says, in a little while you will not see me. And in a little while you will see me again. You will see me again, referring to the resurrection exactly three days later, to be precise. And seeing him, their deep, dark sorrow and anguish, and, and, and anguish would immediately give way to joy. And if we were to flip over to John chapter 20, verse 20, what Jesus says here in John chapter 16 proves to be true in John chapter 20, verse 20. Jesus resurrects from the dead. He then is among the disciples and when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side, and the disciples then rejoiced. Sorrow gives way to joy because of the resurrection of Jesus. And so then it reminds us that what Jesus says here, even in verse 22, I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. And there's there's another interpretation where people would say, well, maybe what he's talking about is his ascension. I'm going to go away and then I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and you will see me again. And I think the context here makes most sense to know Jesus is talking about his death. You will not see me and his resurrection. I will appear. You will see me again. 
This isn't the first time that Jesus had told the disciples about his impending death and resurrection. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Mark chapter 9, verse 31. Mark chapter 10, verse 34. Not 31. Mark chapter 8, 31, 9, 31, 10, 34. Jesus tells, this, tells his disciples, I will die and I will rise from the dead. And yet they still don't understand. What in the world is he talking about? In their confusion, they began to speak to one another. And I love verse 19. Jesus knew that they wished to question him. And he said to them, are you deliberating together about this? That I said a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. I have so many moments as a kid. I remember something happening. My parents saying something to me, talking to my siblings about it or my friends about it, only to have my parents come back in the room and say, are you talking about that? Like, uh, what? How do you know that? Jesus, unprompted by their questions, but speaks to the very questions that they had. He does that because Jesus, what he's shown all throughout the Gospel of John is that Jesus knows all things. Jesus is not limited in his knowledge about anything. And so the disciples didn't have to tell him and ask him the questions. The disciples could have just merely thought the questions and Jesus knew exactly what they were thinking. And again, notice the kind disposition of our Savior. I think oftentimes we think, man, if I have questions about what the Lord has said or if I'm confused, then he's going to come to me like the dad who's really angry. And that's not how Jesus approaches his disciples. Tenderly, lovingly, bringing about opportunities for clarity, for the confusion that they had. And, and that clarity would result in their joy and in their peace. And so I just want to invite you this morning, if you are wrestling with questions about the faith, if you're wrestling with doubts about God, if you're wrestling with what do I do with my hurts and hard times, he already knows. He already knows. And so feel free to take your hurts to him. Feel free to speak to him. And in doing so, I believe you plead your limits and you acknowledge his sufficiency. God, I don't know why this is happening or what you're doing. And it's hard. And to hear the Father, to have the Father receive those questions. He continues in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Several things are happening in verse 20. Jesus says to the disciples that they will weep and they will lament at his death. And while the disciples are weeping and lamenting, the world will be rejoicing. And this is one of the great contrasts between the world and Christians, those that have turned from their sin and that are actively turning from their sin and have trusted in the work of Jesus alone is the only way they'll ever be made right with God. The Bible makes clear that Christians are different from the world. It, it shouldn't be that the Christian says, man, how much, of the, how much alike can I be with this world? The power of the crucifixion and the resurrection shows that we can be distinct from this world. Many would see the crucifixion, the world would see the crucifixion as a penalty for a prophet who had just gone too far. Many would see the crucifixion as, well, this is what happens when the troublemaker from Nazareth really deserves what he had coming. The world would rejoice at this death because Jesus, in his coming, would expose their sin. He would uncover their guilt. And the very life of Jesus was this daily, moment-by-moment -moment rebuke for the idolatry and the immorality that the world lives in. And so they would, they would rejoice. They were thrilled that Jesus would be humiliated and executed 
and removed from their midst. I mean, this is what John tells us all throughout his gospel. John chapter 3, verse 19, this is the judgment that light has come into the world, Jesus, and men love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Why don't people love Jesus who's light? For their deeds were evil, and the light exposes their evil deeds. John chapter 7, verse 7, the world hated Jesus. Why? Because the world's deeds are evil. And so while the world would be rejoicing at the death of Jesus, the disciples would see that the, the disciples would be heavy laden with anguish and lament and sorrow. They would see it as the wrongful death of their leader, the wrongful death of their friend, the wrongful death of the king of Israel. They would weep for their loss. But as we remembered on Friday, they would also just weep and lament at the depths of his sufferings. While the world, all unbelievers, Jewish, Gentile, while the world would rejoice, the disciples would experience the bitter, the bitter nature of grief. But notice something else in verse 20. That their grieving has an expiration date. The world will rejoice and you will grieve, but... Such a good word study to do all throughout the Bible. Look at all the buts in the Bible. Something, 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 but. And just see the kindness of God. The but there appears. But your grief will be turned into joy. Their grief is going to turn to joy. Their deep anguish and sense of loss concerning his death is going to give way to joy. Why? Not because he's no longer with them, but because they will see him again. Something about the resurrection is going to bring about a joy that will swallow grief and sorrow. And, and let's be clear, what Jesus doesn't promise in verse 20 is that you will no longer grieve. Uh, their, grief is going to be absolutely done away with. No. He says you will still grieve, but your grief will give way to joy. Something about the resurrection of Jesus is going to fundamentally change. It's going to usher in a new reality. Well, to help them understand, Jesus continues in verse 21, and he gives an illustration to compare the, the devastating anguish that they're going to experience. And he likens it to the experience of childbirth. Verse 21, whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. I've had the privilege of seeing some of this pain, not experiencing any of this pain, And there's something, really, that, that changes. I mean, it's like, whoa. And then the baby is born. And it's like, where did that go? And, and anyone, anyone who's been there, anyone who would even think about what that may be like, what do you love? You love the result of the birth. I don't know many people that are going, man, I love birthing. No, it's marked with anguish. The pain of delivery is intense, often bringing tears and anguish. But when the mother finally gives birth to her child, the weeping turns to rejoicing because she has a new baby. And it's interesting, the word, the phrase there Jesus uses in verse 21, because her hour has come. That phrase, my hour has come, has been used all throughout the gospel, talking about the time of Jesus' suffering. 
And so it's clear what Jesus is doing. Jesus is making a clear connection between the suffering that childbirth has and the suffering that he will endure. Not saying they're on par, but using the, the example and the illustration to say the, the anguish and the pains and the tears of his death, it will lead to joy and happiness because of the resurrection. In the same way that the childbirth, suffering gives way to joy, so too his death will give way to joy in the resurrection. Suffering is going to happen in this life. And if you are in Christ, there is a temporary nature. There is an expiration date to your suffering. And this is not promising that you're going to have prosperity on this earth. Your expiration date for your suffering may be the date that you breathe your last. But if you are in Christ, suffering does not have the last word. And you say, well, how can you say that? Because if you are in Christ, suffering and death didn't have the last word with Christ. The implication of the illustration is to show that the resurrection brings an end to the sorrow. The resurrection brings a permanency to joy. Something new has arrived that wasn't present before. Before, it was just suffering. But now there's something new that's arrived. Joy. Sorrow gives way to great joy. And again, it's what Jesus has been teaching his disciples, but they've missed all along the way. John chapter 12, verse 24. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if the grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, sorrow, suffering, it bears much fruit. Life, joy. And now we're beginning to arrive at the heart of this passage. And verse 22 summarizes it all up. Therefore, you too have grief now. Like the woman in childbirth, you too have grief now. But I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. This is a provocative promise that it is possible because of the resurrection to have a joy that will last forever, that will be invincible to the hardships and the trials and the attempts of others to steal and to rob you of your joy. I mean, that's a provocative promise. I will rise from the dead and I will come to you. I love even how he words that in verse 22. Therefore, you two have grief now, but I will see you again. If you were to go back and look at verse 16, if you were to go back and look at verse 17, if you were to go back and look at verse 19, it says, and you will see me. But there's something on the other side of the resurrection that makes clear where the initiative lies. The initiative lies, the joy lies, not in their ability to find him. The joy lies in the fact that he will see them. He will find them. Jesus is declaring that the initiative is his to come to them. And that's what he does. And when Jesus comes to you, your hearts rejoice. And so did theirs. And when Jesus comes to you, the provocative promise stands true. Your joy will not go away. It will not be taken away. It will not be destroyed. It will not be lost. Invincible and everlasting joy is possible. How in the world is it possible? It's, it's, it's founded. It stands squarely on the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Everything about the Christian faith rises and falls on the resurrection of Jesus. Everything about how you face the difficulties tomorrow rises and falls on the resurrection of Jesus. Everything about where you go to seek joy in this world rises and falls on the resurrection of Jesus. I read a book a few years ago by John Piper called Future Grace. And he really talked at one point in the book about two implications that helped shape this for me. 
How in the world can we have a joy that will never be taken away? I mean, this world, at every turn, it's joy. Only then, over time, you begin to experience sorrow. Because earthly joys can't last. And one of the biggest reasons they can't last is because of death. And so how in the world can Jesus promise your joy will never be taken away from you? And John Piper's book was helpful. Two implications for how that can happen. Invincible and everlasting joy is possible because Jesus is invincible and everlasting. Think about this. Joy comes from being with Jesus. And the resurrection of Jesus means that Jesus, he, he will never die. And so I ask, how in the world can Jesus make this kind of promise with that kind of permanency? And Jesus is able to make that kind of promise with that kind of permanency because that's the kind of permanency that Jesus has. Because of the resurrection, Jesus will never die. And if you're not a Christian this morning, I just want you to know what that means. If Jesus will never die, and those who are in Christ, those who are with Jesus, can know joy that's everlasting because Jesus is everlasting, I just want you to know what that means. That means for you today that the greatest need that you have isn't merely to think about how you find joy. The greatest need for you today is to get in with him, to be in Christ so that you can have the security of knowing that my joy will never die because my Jesus will never die. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, I would invite you just to come to Jesus. This is not, this call to come to Jesus is not Jesus trying to interrupt your already pretty good kind of life. No, this is Jesus inviting you to come to joy. Come to everlasting joy. And if you're a follower of Christ, the joy of being with Jesus cannot be taken away from you because Jesus will never die. That sets the pace for joy. Your circumstances don't determine whether or not you're joyful. Jesus' non-expiration determines whether or not you can be joyful. Jesus means I will be your joy and I can never die again. Therefore, your joy will never die again. And so if Jesus is not the joy of your heart this morning, then turn from whatever sin is promising you joy. Just have an honest conversation with yourself that the things that you're turning to in order to find joy, just allow, allow reality Will it last beyond the grave? And if the answer is no, then it's not an everlasting joy. This joy that will never be taken from you is a joy that comes from knowing and seeing and being with Jesus. And so if your joy is in the physical pleasures of sex or the power that comes with money or the excellence with which you can play a particular sport or the skill that you have that can fulfill your job, then your joy will be short-lived. You will not know everlasting joy. You will not know invincible joy. Jesus is our only full and final lasting joy. And the joy that comes from knowing Jesus will last forever because Jesus will last forever. He's been raised from the dead. He has conquered sin and death. He's conquered the grave. It's as if Jesus says, as long as I'm alive, your joy will live. And because I will never die, your joy will never die or be taken away from you. And so we can know everlasting joy because Jesus is everlasting. His resurrection says he will never die. But we can also know invincible and everlasting joy. Secondly, because Christians will never die. So it's not just that Jesus, the object of our joy, will never die. But if you are in Christ, you will never die. 
Joy comes from being with Jesus. And the resurrection means that those that are in Christ will never be cut off from him. And so if your joy lasts forever, then it doesn't help that the source of your joy lasts forever. You need to last forever. Like at some point, my joy can last forever, but I stop here. Then I don't have everlasting joy. So not only does the source of my joy have to last forever, I have to last forever. If I'm temporary or the sources of my joy are temporary, then lasting joy will always elude me. And the world chases this all day long, every day. Eat, drink, power, relationships, pleasure. It's only here today. And since I'm only here today, then let's make the most of today. And if that's the joy, if that's the... And let me just say, that is the best this life has to offer. But you don't have to settle for that. All I got's today kind of joy. What a tragedy. Jesus talks about this in John chapter 14, verses 18 and 19. Where Jesus says, I will not leave you. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. Because Jesus lives, so too all that are in Christ, they will live. He not only lives forever as the source of joy, but we too live forever if he is the source of our joy. It's what he means in John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. That's what Jesus would say to Martha at the tomb of Lazarus. And some would say, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on. This is weird. Are you saying that Christians are never going to die? In an earthly sense, everyone is going to die. Christian, non-Christian. And so it's not uh, what Jesus means when, when he talks about if he will be our joy forever, then we have to also live forever. He's not saying that Christians somehow escape a physical earthly death. But what he is saying is that the joy that a believer has in being with Jesus is never broken. There is no separation for the Christian. There is no expiration for the Christian. I mean, and Paul talks about this. I mean, I'm going back and forth because if I live, I want to live for his sake. But if I die, I get, I get to be with him. No one will ever take your joy from you. Not life, not death, not angels, nor principalities, or things present, or things to come, or powers, or heights, or depths. Anything in all of creation, nothing will be able to take our joy from us in Jesus Christ. Amen. And that centers squarely on the resurrection. There's a joy in being with Jesus. And we see this unbroken line that once you're with him, you're with him now until all of eternity. Death doesn't interrupt that. Death ushers you in to where your faith gives way to sight. Where the greatest treasure and joy that you have been disciplining yourself to just, I believe though I can't see, I believe though I can't see, Death is where your belief becomes sight. It's not an interruption. It's not a severing. It's a moment of clarity. It's getting closer. If you're in Christ, this world is as worse. It, it, this is as bad as it gets. And praise be to God, there are earthly joys that are pretty good on this earth. But none of those joys were... Ne they were never intended to be ultimate joys. Joy in being with Jesus really does now until eternity. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he says, But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and the mortal will have put on immortality, then 
will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why there is hope that the greatest enemy that you will face is sin and death. This is why physical death on this earth is not the separation from God. Because Jesus has conquered sin and death. And faith in him then leads you into his presence, not away from his presence. And so I guess the answers to the questions about true joy and where you find that really does hinge on what you believe about the one true and living God. And the Bible spells this out that God created all things for his glory so that his creation would glorify and magnify and enjoy him. Somewhere along the way, we have gotten it in our minds that somehow God is opposed to our joy. The resurrection, his life, go all the way back. Creation, it's all here so that we would experience and know joy. That's the kind of God that he is. It was when sin entered the world and ruined all the enjoyment that God had designed. And every human, Adam and Eve following, we have become idolaters. We've turned away from the living God. We did not love God. We did not rejoice in his glory. We didn't delight in his glory. And instead, we exchanged the glory of the immortal God for living things, physical things, physical pleasures. And it's because of that sin. Had the Lord just said, you are left in your sin, there would be no hope. We wouldn't be gathering, we wouldn't be singing. There would be nothing but wrath that is due every one of us. Not because he's mean, but because God's holy. And yet in great mercy and grace, Jesus comes into the world and he enters the world for the joy that was set before him. And he enters the world so that you and I, ruiners of joy, would be able to become possessors of joy. And he endured the cross for the joy set before him. And the author of Hebrews says, so now then let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Everything he did was motivated by joy. And so even in this final conversation with the apostles here in John's gospel, we have this repeated mentions of joy. In John chapter 15, verse 11, I have told you this, why? So that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. John chapter 16, verse 24, until now you've asked nothing in my name, but if you ask, you will receive and your joy will be complete. John chapter 17, Jesus says, I'm coming to you, Father, but I say these things while I'm still in the world. Why? So that they, the disciples may have the full measure of my joy. Friends, this is all about joy. God created with the intent of joy and for you to have it. And your sin has kept you from it. And the resurrection says you can have it back, but you can have it back better than you ever had it because nothing, nothing can separate you from this kind of joy. Nothing can rob you of this joy. It will never be taken away. That's why Jesus came into the world. He came to give us joy in God, and joy is the only re proper response. Oh, what a delightful God He is. He wants you to know joy. He's in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. He rules and reigns in pleasure. He sits on his throne and does whatever brings him joy and glory. And we're the messed up ones. We're the ones that don't know joy. And the good news of the resurrection is that we can know joy. Psalms chapter 16, verse 11. And you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. 
In your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Believing in the resurrected Christ is an invitation to joy, a joy that can't be taken away and a joy that will last forever. Friends, if you want that joy, turn from your sin and trust in the work that Jesus has done. And the good news is all of those other fountains that you have been going to, you will see them for what they are, dry cisterns that can't hold water. And you can come to the living fountain whose goodness and mercy and grace and love and joy will never run dry. And if, for my Christian brothers and sisters, you have a loud enemy in this world and in Satan and your flesh to conspire to pull you away from this kind of unshakable joy. And if you find yourself, Christian, this morning ensnared in worldly pursuits, thinking that you're going to find joy, the invitation this morning is for you to turn from that, to believe, believe that there's only one place to find invincible and everlasting joy. And I would just encourage you then come back to the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is to be your joy. You're to meditate on it. You're to feed on it. You're to talk to other people about it. I wonder this morning, Christian brothers and sisters, what small thing are you doing that's keeping you from seeing what all you have in Christ? What sin are you treasuring? What, are you, what sin are you avoiding? Uh, uh, what good thing are you avoiding doing? Because if you're going to stay focused on your financial problems and your job problems and the achievements that you have, then you're going to be well aware of your, insin your insufficiency to solve them. If you're facing marital problems and parenting problems and all kinds of anxieties that are pulling you away from this kind of joy and this kind of security, I would just come back to him. And maybe you're here and things are going really, really well for you. But you would say, my joys are essentially earthly. Then you're vulnerable. Come back to the cross in the empty tomb and find unshakable joy there. Ask the Lord to wean you from these earthly joys. Not, I'm doing away with all earthly joys, but wean you from wanting to put the ultimate hope in earthly joys. Alexis de Tocqueville said it best, the incomplete joys of this world were never intended to satisfy the human heart. Christians don't choose joy because they just can't find it anywhere else. No, when Christians taste the joy that's found in Christ, and like the man who finds the treasure hidden in a field, Christians get rid of everything to lay hold of that joy. And so don't believe the lie that joy is only found when the clouds in your life finally clear so that the sun can finally shine through. Don't settle for a religion or a God that cannot promise joy even in the darkest, most difficult days. Church, Christ is risen. Church, Christ is risen. And because of that, there is a joy that you can never lose once you lay hold of it. Let's pray.